This episode is dedicated to Karian, Jeff Chang, and Juan C. Rodriguez for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. If you can spare a few dollars a month, consider supporting us on Patreon. Not only do you get access to bonus content, but you'll also be supporting this entire project from research, podcasting, outreach, networking, social media, MMA curriculum, future training collectives, and all of our different online groups. If everyone who follows us were to support us with even $1 a month, this project could actually sustain my living and make this the only thing I do. My co-host Paul was able to keep working throughout the pandemic. However, I was not so fortunate. I also have a family to consider. Many leftist passion projects like this one have disappeared because the creators eventually had to make a financial decision whether to continue or not. The pandemic has only accelerated this timetable. We all know fascists and right-wing chuds who are doing well right now. And many of us, especially in the martial arts, support them by buying and ordering their products, their matches, attending their classes, seminars, and so forth. So if the money is being spent anyway, let's keep that money circulating within the anti-fascist sphere instead. Low-key hating the fash is not the same as actively supporting your comrades. I'm not just talking about myself or Sapa. There are plenty of others who could use your support. There's actually enough of us to all support one another. We just never thought about it because we're just used to consumerism rather than active mutual support. We're also never going to be as popular as the right in the combat sports space. But we don't need to be. We just need solidarity among the numbers we already have. Sometimes we just need a reminder. Also, many of you were supporting the Sanders campaign every month. Well, he's out of the race, but we're still in the game. So we're once again asking for that financial support instead. I also recognize many of you are also in difficult financial situations. And Paul and I appreciate you following us and telling your friends about us. If that's the only aid you can give, that's more than enough. This is Sam. This is Gabriel. And this is Southpaw. Today on Southpaw, we have historian, writer, philosopher, activist, and former professional athlete, Gabriel Kuhn. Hi, Gabriel. Hello. So first off, let's start with some of the books you're most known for and what they're about. I think the two books that I am most known for, and now I just go by sales and overall feedback that I've got. Um, So those would be Sober Living for the Revolution. Uh, hardcore punk, um, straight edge and radical politics, and then uh, the books Soccer versus the State, tackling football um, and uh, radical politics. Both of those books came out pretty much at the same time. I think Sober Living was 2010 and then Soccer versus the State 2011. 
And I've done a few other books on sports. I've also done books on, on workers' history, but those two stand out in terms of just broad recognition. Now, what happened first, an interest in politics or an interest in sports? Definitely an interest in sports. I would say that until I was uh, 15 years old, I had no other interests um, generally. There was only sports. So I was, I watched sports, I played sports. So that was certainly number one. Everything else, including the politics, came later. And was that mainly football slash soccer or was it a variety of sports? A variety of sports. I did um, play and compete in, in, in a variety of sports until I was 14, mainly though soccer, tennis, and uh, alpine skiing. And it was at that age, 14, when I had to make a decision to focus on one of them if I wanted uh, any chance uh, at you know making it to the professional level. What country did you grow up in? I grew up in Austria. I, I did. I well, from the age of six, I was born in Austria. My parents are Austrian, but uh, they uh, traveled and worked in other countries until I was six years old. But then, from the age of six, I grew up in a small village in the Austrian Alps. There's also arguments about whether it's better to do a variety of sports or to specialize early, which thinks of sports as a career path or a money-making endeavor. But how should we as leftists tackle this question? I mean, there's also what's tied into that is the whole general debate about what what uh, sports, uh, even official sports policies, what what government government policies, what they should focus on. I mean, is it to produce elite athletes or is it to have a, a population that is active and healthy and engages in Again, a variety of sports. Uh, so, so those are kind of general political debates that play into it. Your first interest was sports. What drew you to politics? Hmm. Uh, a very good question. I should be able to answer this right away because it's been such a big part of my life since then. But I would say that it was a combination of becoming more aware, just just observing what was happening in my school, especially in terms of class um, identity and how uh, kids from middle and upper middle class families had it easier to to graduate and go on to college, not because they were smarter or uh, even, uh, you know, um, spent more time studying, but just because of the support they got from their parents, both financially, they knew people. I think that those were things that I observed that at a fairly early age and that I thought were, were wrong. And that was maybe the first sort of um, step into political analysis. Another aspect was that that was more at an individual level that I had, um, I had big, what you call disciplinary problems in school. So I got into a lot of uh, conflicts with uh, my teachers. And I think that then also eh, brought some kind of awareness about or, or just an interest in, in hierarchical relationships, authority. And, and I think out of that combination, then came my just general interest in people who to try to 
change those systems and 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 I guess once you have that interest you end up uh, pretty quickly in in not just politics but also radical politics. Did sports help to kind of highlight some of that for you? Did sports help you to see inequalities that you wouldn't have otherwise? Not at that age, I don't think. Not not when when I was a teenager. Really, the only thing that I feel um, that the sports part at that time related to my uh, political interest when it was very new was, um, and I only thought about this later on, but was just a very pronounced sense of of fairness. Like there, there's something in sports when I see, you know, people and to this day, I, you know, people cheating to win. It's just horrible to me. And you, you just, you know, you don't, you don't do that. There, there are certain rules, and those rules uh, are there so that everyone has uh, the same opportunities and the same chances. And 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 then, yeah, if you want to have a competition, you can start a competition, but it's got to be fair. Um, and I think there was a similar sense maybe that I applied to society at large. Like, why should, if I use the example from before, why should someone get into college only because their parents were friends with someone at the college who made it possible that they, you know, got a place there, not because they were better students than others who didn't have those connections. So, the, so that just seemed profoundly unfair. So so there was, I think, some kind of similarity. But I don't think that sports really made me aware of social inequality in any particular way at that time. Mm, maybe it gave you a bit of idealism, though, because as bad as sports can get, right, as far as corruption and whatever, you compare it to real life. If I'm a, a really good player and I have a kid and they're terrible, just because I was a starter on a team does not mean they can inherit that and they too can become a starter. Right. They still have to somewhat earn that position. And if they can't, they'll be kicked off very shortly and it'd be apparent what I did. Whereas in the real world, if I'm a very powerful CEO or even a politician, people can inherit that and just take over where I left off. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that comparison, yeah, I mean, I, that that's a, that's a very good point that there's a certain idealism that... I think I, I maybe uh, learned in sports and that I then applied to, to the world at large. That I think would be a, a fair assessment. I don't know if this is the case where you grew up, but here in the U.S., for a lot of privileged people or people who come up from like upper middle class to higher wealth, the only time they might interact with people like peers their same age that might come from different economic backgrounds or lower economic backgrounds or different races is through sports. Yeah, I think that's also why when you ask that question about, you know, did I did I see inequality in sports or how did that, um, you know, influence my political views? I, I thought about saying that, that I think it was at the time actually in sports where, for example, the, the kids I knew from, you know, farms or lots of farms where I grew up or from the, you know, rural Austrian proletariat, like this, this was the this was the area where they had a fairly play, level playing field with the kids from the middle or upper classes, which was not the case when you went to schooling, education, and so so in that sense, once again, I think there was more of that. Maybe you know, I mean, I don't want to paint too rosy a picture. You had that certain people had an influence, of course, on sports clubs as well, but but it, but it was different. That was certainly this is where. 
where some of the the, the my working class um, friends uh, could excel in in a different way than than in other parts of society. And you also mentioned skiing, so that could be a different sport where probably is much more cost prohibitive. Oh, and especially tennis. Tennis even more so, um, at least at least in Austria, because the, the the skiing, but the skiing in Austria is a bit interesting because I think it's probably different to the U.S. because it's it's the the national sport, so there is actually a lot of public funding also for kids who might not have uh, you know those funds coming from their their parents. But in a sport like tennis, for example, that that was very that was very obvious. I mean, you needed. Uh, most of those players have uh, good players have very strong uh, financial support from their parents. Otherwise, it's very difficult to succeed there. I uh, sometimes joke, but actually, it is kind of a hope that my kid will become an athlete one day. And when I tell people that, a lot of people are like, "Oh, just put them in golf." Yeah, <laughs> not poor people, but people who have means will say, "Just put them in golf," as if there's no cost to putting them in golf, and that that I might not be able to put them in golf enough to be competitive. Why do they think of golf? Because you can become rich playing golf, or what? What is their yeah wealth? But it's like if you take the top fifty percent of golfers and compare it to like the top fifty percent of NBA or uh, baseball golf makes less they're just only thinking about the very very top end too so you could see how their whole view is so skewed first of all they don't understand the concept of something being cost prohibitive and secondly when they think about something or when they compare something they don't compare it bottom up they compare it top down right exactly that's the same with tennis i mean you look at tennis and it seems that oh my god you know these professional tennis players make so much money but you know, if if you, you make a lot of money, if you're top 20, 30, 40, maybe, I mean, you can be, you can be the, you know, in the top 200, 150 best tennis player in the world. You're not even making that much money. I mean, you're making okay money, but you got to spend a lot touring around and paying your coaches. So, so yeah, I think people very much get stuck on, on, on the very top. Um, I think, unfortunately, that's the case pretty much everywhere. You, you see the celebrities and then you think, and that's another thing, you, you, you get this message, oh, you know, they can do it, so everyone can do it, which obviously is not true. I mean, you can only have 10 players in the top 10 <laughs> and not, you know, 100,000, so... Well, it speaks to, especially here in the U.S., American exceptionalism, where we think of ourselves as the richest country in the world, but only because we think about the richest Americans, not because we think of even the average American. Right, exactly. What about philosophy then? What drew you to that? Yeah, I think when I first got interested in it, it was the 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 big questions. So, you know, is there a God or is there no God? And what's the meaning of life and what is right and what is wrong? Um, although I also have to say, uh, talking about family background, um, I both my my dad and his dad had studied philosophy. So so once I expressed those kind of that that interest i was fairly easy for me to get more information and they would recommend books and and so it was easy to kind of dive into that that world which which then i thought was fascinating you know the ancient greeks and and you read a lot of interesting books and and, and then i went on to to study philosophy at 
university. And I ended up doing a PhD program um, because I still was interested in those questions. And I always enjoyed writing. So then writing a thesis was, was kind of fun. But I was during those years at university, I became more and more, I don't, I mean, partly frustrated, but partly also just bored with the academic environment. So, so that's why uh, then once I had finished that program, I never pursued any academic career. And I mean, there's not really any job for a philosopher outside of it. So, so essentially, I mean, that's my academic background. But I haven't, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, again, I still find those questions interesting. But I, with the academic world of philosophy today, I, I don't even know what's going on. I've completely lost touch to that. So you went from only caring about sports and dedicating your life to sports to one day asking yourself, hey, wait a minute, why am I kicking this ball? What is the meaning of life? Is there a God? What happens after we die? Kind of like that. I mean, when I first got interested in those questions, so, you know, now we're talking age 16, 17, 18, there, there was a lot of that. It was like, you know, exactly. What, what's, the, what's the meaning of a football game or soccer game? You know, what, what, what difference does it make whether my team wins 2-1 or we lose and why do I even care? There was, there was a lot of that. That, that stuff at the time. Um, I'm much more relaxed today, but, but at the time, that was, that was, those were big questions. So your area of study is post-structuralism, and I don't know if the same is true in Europe, but in the U.S., conservatives have used post-structuralism along with Marxism as a boogeyman to explain all that they hate. For many listeners, that might be all they know of it. So what is post-structuralism, and why is this something we should care about? Okay, so now I got to get back to what I said before. So there was um, a time in my life when I was very interested in those questions. So that was the 1990s and when I studied um, philosophy at university. And that was, I would say, the first phase when post-structuralism, -stru post and I will explain in a second what that is, be became big. And so um, and, and, and that's why I was interested in it at the time. Uh, okay, one thing after, after uh, another. So post-structuralism basically is a very vague term that um, is used for a, a group of thinkers, uh, mainly based in France in the 1970s. And they're only called post-structuralists because before they came in the 1960s, there was a school that was referred to as structuralism in academia, in different fields. Um, Levi Strauss, for example, represented that school in anthropology and Jacques Lacan in psychoanalysis. And very simply speaking, they saw, um, they were looking for big, solid structures that you could use to explain societies that you could use um, to explain the, the relationships of people to one another that you could use to explain people's uh, psyche. And when you say structures, you don't mean physical structures, right? It could be also like societal structures. 
exactly it could be society it could be intellectual structures but something that would that that would some kind of order that that by studying things you could you could figure out how things were connected to one another you saw certain laws that that uh things people relationships were were following so you'd you'd give solid answers to people to explain uh certain phenomena and and these authors who came then in the 1970s questioned the possibility of doing that and and this is where a lot of the things uh, come into play that people today associate with post-structuralism or with postmodernism, which is essentially a related term and often used as a synonym, which means that there is no real, there are no real structures, there's no real truth. That's all relative. It changes over time. Uh, the world is diverse, and we have to embrace that diversity. And so, so that was that was a key message. That in itself could be enough reasons why conservatives don't like it. Oh, absolutely. So, and and also at the time, so 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 those ratings in France came out in the 1970s, and there was a clear political reason to that, which was the uprising in France in 1968. Which I mean, there were uprisings around the world in 1968, but but France was one of the countries uh, in the Western world where it really came to a, a revolutionary situation. There were strikes across the country. It wasn't just a student rebellion, workers joined, joined and it was unclear which way the, the country uh, would be going. And the established institutions of the left, so the Communist Party and the great trade unions, they, in the analysis of many of the, the radical participants in the uprising, they failed the uh the the uprising students and workers because they compromised with the state and they um did their part to to basically kill that that revolutionary moment and, and look for compromises and that frustrated a lot of people and they saw this sort of this this the the, the structuralism at the time in academia as somehow complicit with the old left that 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 represented the only the only way to socialism or that represented the only true um, expression of the the will of the working class and all of that was questions and question and that tied into there is not one truth we, you know there's a diversity of protests in different groups and 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 so it was a very radical movement at the time so so the big thinkers that are some of the big thinkers that are associated with post structuralism like Michel Foucault is a name that listeners might have heard Gilles Deleuze Félix Guattari those were all political radicals and then as it often you know is the case you need to translate those books so it took a decade, two decades before this was spreading beyond France and, and um, you know to other European countries and 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 to North America and so and so now we're in the 1990s when I'm at university. So what happened then as well was the Soviet Union was collapsing in 89, 1990. So you seem to have further confirmation that the old left and state socialism um, was discredited. 
And then these thinkers became even more interesting because they seem to represent a sort of new wave of, of radical thought. And, and that's why I was interested in it at the time. And I still think that there is a lot uh, of interest in the works of these people, even if a lot of it also is, is fairly obscure. But what, what has happened since then is that what, what you, what you um, encounter as post-structuralism and post-modernism in academia today, I think for the most part really is completely irrelevant. It's just, um, it unfortunately becomes an easy boogeyman for conservatives because it doesn't really say very much. It uses big words, it's jargon, it has become depoliticized. So I do not think that, that that's, very interesting. Um, but the origins um, are interesting. You could maybe compare it to, I mean, if you look at the history of the Marxist left, you find all sorts of crazy sectarian groups that make you think that this is just complete nonsense. How is this going to help any of us uh, to make our lives better? How is this going to advance socialism? How is this going to advance uh, working class people? But then if you go back to the original writings of, say, Karl Marx, um, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. You know what I mean? So I think with post-structuralism, it's sort of similar. I still think that there, there's a lot to, to learn, um, to get inspired by in the original texts that once founded this very vague movement. But what has become of it? I think is, uh, I think I, I, I always forget exactly. Noam Chomsky once said that it's either um, trivial, irrelevant, or nonsensical or something. <laughs> and and, and I, I can't agree with that when you look at what's, what's being said to us under those, those terms today. And that unfortunately, as I said, makes it easy for, for the right to dismiss everything that they sort of then associate with it, you know, be it in their terms, identity politics or, or whatever. So it's become, a, it's become part of, of this the culture war in that sense. And to go back in time, back to that hotbed of 1968 and connected to our overarching conversation about sports, that was also the 1968 Olympics. And for Americans, why that stands out is that was the site of where two American athletes raised their fists in solidarity with black power, right? So there's that iconic picture that people share, um, especially right now it's coming up again, but people don't remember when it happened, why it happened. So you're kind of framing what was happening at the time were these mass uprisings and it was um, the formation of the Black Panthers and civil rights turned into black power, but there was also the Vietnam War going on and the viciousness of the Tet Offensive and uprisings throughout Europe. And so all of that probably culminates into that very infamous and powerful moving image of the Olympic athletes, black athletes, uh, with their raised fists and their heads down. Absolutely. So that, that, is, that is clearly part of the same historical moment. The, the revolutionary situation in France, this, the iconic image uh, from the uh, 68 Olympics in Mexico City and, and many other uprisings, all of that. 
um, all of that is an expression of of the the, the the global uprising of 1968. The thing that I've gained the most from post-structuralism that helps me as uh, a political thinker is that we all start with some kind of base assumptions, right? How we got there, I don't know. But whenever somebody says something as if it's capital T truth, it's like, well, you're making an assumption. I did a previous episode about capitalist realism. And a lot of times people just talk about capitalism, not even realizing they're making an assumption that capitalism is a fixture of reality, that it's a law of physics, right? I mean, there's so much more to post-structuralism, but the, the takeaway that has helped me the most is that a lot of what we take for reality are just assumptions. Oh, absolutely. And I think exactly what you're saying, like looking at his understanding that things develop historically and that our conceptions of what is true, very obviously of what, you know, what is right, like ethics, all of that, all of that changes and it depends on the time and the space and the people involved, the way we communicate. So I think all of these things are very important um, insights that that do come from from the origins of post-structuralism and that that we should all be aware of when we do social and political analysis. Yeah, I think especially here in the U.S., when we talk about how great the country used to be or how great the founding fathers were, and then slavery is brought up, and then somebody will say, well, no one knew that was bad at the time. And it's like, okay, they don't realize they're making an assumption. When they say no one, they're only including white people and not even all white people, right? But powerful white people at the time didn't think anything was wrong with it. But I'm sure slaves thought there was something wrong with it, right? So the racist assumption, which has passed down through legacy, is that slave owners and racist Americans are counted as people, whereas abolitionists and slaves. Black Americans don't count as people. And since this assumption is taken as reality or just the norm or as the default, then people don't recognize it as an assumption. So why would they call each other out? So this is where a philosophy of challenging all ideas is so important. Because if you can't even see what are assumptions, like cops are always in the right or property always over people, then you have to start from assuming everything is an assumption and then go through it one by one. I think I would also say you, you could partly, not exclusively, but partly credit post-structuralism for looking at, at the history in a different way and, and what's sometimes now referred to as people's history. You, so you, you don't just look at the history that the winners in history, the powerful people have written, but you look at um, the the history that comes from the people who are left out in those official accounts of history. I think Michel Foucault, that's what he referred to as minor knowledge. Um, so 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 stressing the importance of that, I think that was certainly which I, you know is embraced. I think today uh, by a lot of people, a lot of radicals. Um, with an interest in post-structuralism or not, but but I do think that those people contributed to that view, radical view uh, of of history that more and more people are embracing today. Yeah, I mean, at the time it was very radical, and it's still radical today, right? And whether people recognize what that term is or where a lot of these ideas came from, that idea of looking at the other perspective or you're making a hegemonic assumption is very important for anti-racists or feminists, just uh, anybody who is not part of the powerful majority. Yeah, I agree. So 
recently well-known leftist thinker and writer David Graeber died. Did you happen to know him at all? Yes, not very well, but I did. I first got in touch with uh, David Graeber in probably was 2007 um, when I translated what's probably still one of his best-known essays, uh, The New Anarchists, uh, when I translated that into German. And and so we started emailing, and and since we have uh, we have had had um, common interests, uh, radical politics, and then more specifically um, anarchism, but also piracy. I think the very last project that that David was working on was on piracy, and I did some work on piracy before as well. So we we stayed in touch had on and off email contact over the years. We met uh, once in the UK after he had moved there. Um, so yes, we, we were um, acquainted, I would say. So can you tell us a bit about him as a thinker and about some of his seminal works for people who might not know him at all? I think that there's there's no doubt that out of the um, um, self-identified anarchists uh, of the uh, 21st century. Uh, so now I'm excluding someone like uh, Noam Chomsky, who has uh, been around much longer, but people who became known uh, in this uh, century. Uh, D- David Geber is, is, is internationally by far the best known. So he's you know, for better or worse, has become sort of a, a, a personal representative of what's sometimes referred to as the third wave of anarchism. So real briefly, the first wave would have been classical anarchism from 1870 to 1930, when it was a, a mass movement. Uh, you had the Wobblies, IWW, in North America, and then you had all these so-called old man with big beards, uh, Bakunin and Kropotkin and whatnot. So this is the first wave. And then then in connection with what we talked about, the uh, 68 uprising, which had anarchist elements, you sometimes speak of the second wave. And then the third wave came with the so-called anti-globalization or alter globalization movement, um, very often as a reference point connected with the 1999 uh, protests against the WTO meeting in Seattle. And David Graeber, as, as, as an individual, um, represents that era probably more than, than anyone else, uh, not least because he wrote this essay, The New Anarchists, in 2001. And he also coined the term uh, small a anarchism, which in, in a sense ties into our discussion of post-structuralism and post-modernism, because to make it very brief, what it means is that you don't look at anarchism as yet another big ideology that's had, that has all the, the answers for all of our questions, but, but more as a sort of an ethical approach to life, an ethical compass that, 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 allows you to 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 critically look at hierarchical relationships and forms of oppression and tries to provide answers and um, um, in 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 anarchist activisms examples of of small examples of how the world at large could be a better place 
And he represented all that, and he was very uh, a great observer, a sharp thinker, very good writer. And the books that then made him most famous weren't explicitly anarchist books. The first one was Death, which came out, I think, in 2011 at a very good time, just a historical analysis of that phenomenon. So that came out right when the big financial crisis had hit. So so that became an international bestseller and made him really well known uh, far beyond anarchist circles. And then uh, his later book, Bullshit Jobs, which um, analyzes basically the modern workplace in, in global capitalism that consists of many of such jobs, which also now became very relevant during the the, the corona crisis when people started speaking of essential jobs, which is the exact opposite to bullshit jobs. And, and people suddenly realized that, oh, it's the essential workers that get paid the least and that have to do the most important work. So, so that book also got an even stronger uh, relevance in a sense during this crisis. So those would be the two most important books. And he's, again, I mean, with it's, I talked to a friend last week and it almost seemed that with his, uh, I mean, completely unexpected and, and, and shocking passing, it's almost like a whole era of, of, of anarchist history has gone and there's a bit of confusion and you you start to need to uh, orientate yourself in a new way it's it's a big thing for for not just the anarchist movement but but sort of radical critical thinking um in in a larger sense and he also coined we are the 99 percent Yes, exactly. He was involved in the in organizing the very first um, uh, Occupy Wall Street uh, protests, which uh, then became a, a, a strong global uh, movement uh, during a couple of years, and which really also put class kind of back at the center of uh, political radicalism. So, so absolutely, and and that also. Uh, good that you mentioned it because I, I stressed uh, David Graeber's writing and, and thinking, but but he was also always uh, very involved in uh, practical political activist work. Right now, more than ever, even though he's dead, a lot of jobs seems like bullshit and money seems like bullshit, which are his two seminal works. So yeah. going back to post-structuralism, then it goes back to like a lot of this shit is bullshit. It's just based on assumptions. Right. Yeah. Going back to our conversation about sports and politics, I think for many Americans, the connection between sports and politics is obvious because of its history with racism and the treatment of black athletes. What might be less clear is sports and anti-fascism. How do they intersect? Well, I think what you have, so if you look at the origins of what we understand as, as modern sports, so organized uh, competition, new different clubs competing, there are leagues and tournaments, the, 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 origins, of, the origins of that lie in the late um, 19th century. So it's not that old uh, phenomenon. And I think from the very beginning, it, it had big political relevance. So, so very early on, uh, when the first sports clubs were organized, they were mainly organized by churches and factory owners, and it was partly to pacify the working classes, uh, partly to influence them. 
And I think the workers' movement in the uh, early 20th century saw uh, very clearly that sports were popular for the working classes, but that um, what they referred to as bourgeois sports clubs were using sports to indoctrinate the working classes with uh, values that contradicted their actual interests. And, and so... And, and that's where the worker sports movement then then came in, and we can maybe talk more about that later. But what I'm trying to to uh, outline here is a, a history where very early on people realized that there is some kind of political struggle going on about how to use sports in a political way or how to fit sports into different political trajectories and movements because and this is what i always when people talk about sports and politics i think that sports in themselves they're not left-wing or they're not right-wing i mean they're they're games and they have uh, competitive and uh, hierarchical elements that people on the political right can stress and they have elements of solidarity and fair play that people on the left can stress. So there's always a bit of a struggle and the, the connection to anti-fascism came out of that struggle. So you had in the 1920s and 1930s when the uh, fascist movements became stronger in Europe, they were also using sports for their purposes. And so the anti-fascist elements in the in the um, socialists uh, among the socialist sports clubs became stronger, and uh, it became a very clear. I mean, if you look at the big worker sports events uh, of the 1920s and 1930s, you had very clear anti-fascist um, messages. And in different ways, then the war happened, history changed many things and the way that sports was played and the way that left-wing left politics were organized, all of that changed. But I think you have this sort of conflict um, to this day where, where, where sports is. Let's take a concrete example of, of supporters clubs, footballs. Uh, so I'm talking soccer now, soccer supporters clubs. Um, especially in Europe, um, where you have left-wing supporter groups and right-wing supporter groups, and they are kind of struggling over, you know, who's holding the political ground in in, in the stadiums. So, so I think this is it's just a, a connection, the connection between sports and anti-fascism is just part of the political struggle around sports that existed from its very beginnings. Now tell us about counterculture. How does counterculture arise? I would say very simply, counterculture arises when a group of people questions uh, culture, cultural hegemony. So basically, the, 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 the general norms that tie a society or even a very small group of people together, expectations of how are you going to live your life, of structures. <laughs> structures, yes, yes. I would say that countercultures challenge uh, structures, absolutely. And then sometimes they establish new structures and sometimes they don't. They remain very flexible. But but yes, I think counterculture arises at the moment where you question the general norms um, of the society you live in. So then what is counterculture's connection to both fascism and anti-fascism? 
I think the connection is that as soon as countercultures become politicized, um, and, um, okay, you can say that there's always a political element in questioning the existing norms. So that is true. But then when I mean they can become politicized when is, is when they connect with more, with more explicit political demands or visions. And I think it's important to remember that that can indeed go both ways. So, so sometimes I think on the, on the left, you think that, well, counterculture is per se left wing. And so it's always connected to anti-fascism. That's not exactly right. I mean, fascists in their sense are can be revolutionaries too. They want to change the existing order, but they don't want to um, take a few steps ahead towards a more egalitarian world. They usually want to take a few steps backward and, and establish uh, hierarchies that they feel are good but have disappeared. But they both can connect to counterculture. And, and I think sometimes it's overlooked that the political right has that element. And, and I would say that, especially if you look at, if I look at the European example, like one of the reasons why the far right is stronger today than the far left is because they have partly won the countercultural struggle. There's a lot of youth culture in a lot of parts of Europe that have been strongly influenced by um, right-wing people and, and movements, um, more so than, than uh, by, by people uh, from the left. Something else you talk about is the DIY movement. And when I think of DIY or do-it-yourself, I think of YouTube tutorial videos. But you're talking about something much larger than that. So can you tell us about DIY and its history and connection with left politics? Yeah, no, no, larger, different. It's true that I, I always find that funny, too. It's, it's interesting because you have these two sort of different notions of DIY, which actually are connected, but then are still different. So one is, yes, you, you, you do, uh, as you say, there are tutorials that you don't want to um, uh, hire somebody. Exactly. You don't want to hire a plumber to do this or that. You can do it yourself. The interesting thing is that that is actually very closely connected to DIY in, let's say, a countercultural sense. Um, because if you look at, uh, let's say, DIY in punk culture, what what does that have? It's the same principle. You don't you don't have to hire someone to bring out your records. You uh, do that yourself. You don't need a manager to book a tour. You do that yourself. Just the difference is that because it happens in this countercultural context, it is tied to a stronger, I think, political vision of where you think, oh, it's not just practical to do certain things yourself because it's, it's cheaper and maybe more fun, which, again, is also an element of of countercultural DIY, but it's also related to an idea of, hmm, if everyone did that, then we didn't need all those people who um, just make money off of uh, doing jobs for other people, exploiting them, working as mediators and all of that. We'll just do all of that ourselves. We don't have record executives who rip us off and, and, and so on. And so this, I think, is that when I speak of DIY culture, also in a context, a political context, 
this is what I mean. The strongest expression that uh, this is also just, I guess, my age and, and just personal background, the strongest expression where I experienced that was, was in the punk hardcore scene. So this kind of connects back to David Graeber's work with bullshit jobs, but also just anarchism in general. I think so. Yeah. I mean, if people have asked me that sometimes you do these interviews about anarchism and then people ask you, okay, so what is the strongest, most important expression of anarchism? And then a sort of usual answer is, well, you know, the Spanish Revolution. And, 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 and all of that is true. But but just to mix things up a little bit, I, I sometimes say that it's I think it's the hardcore punk underground <laughs> if you I think that that entails a lot of elements that are very interesting for uh, anarchist organizing and, and ideals of, of an anarchist society or world and something you've said a couple of times already is things that interest you and I think that's important for all of us to think about interesting doesn't necessarily mean something tangible that you could do right away like an instruction or a manual, it might be like ideas that are interesting that you should think about. And when you think about these interesting things, then you might be able to pull something out of them that you could actually practically apply. I think that comes from philosophical thinking, being willing to be novel, whimsical, think about interesting ideas, and then see what you can do with it. See if anything comes out of that, right? I just wanted to make a point to listeners that not everything has to be like an instruction manual, like, okay, my takeaway is I'm going to start doing this tomorrow. Sometimes you, you should also sit there and reflect on certain ideas that are interesting and then see what comes out of it. I uh, agree 100%. And actually, now that you've already brought up post-structuralism earlier, I will connect back to that one more time just to illustrate what you said, because this is also one of the things I really liked about uh, authors such as uh, Gilles Deleuze, for example, and Félix Guattari, who wrote a lot of things together, because they would say, uh, as part of their critique of this, again, now I'm using those words, the structuralist model, where, like, where, it, where it was implied that if you really want to understand things, you have to understand the whole model, you have to understand the whole structure, right? And, and they were like, well, you know, since these structures don't really exist, you don't look at things that way. And they, they would say about their own books, um, it's not important that you read it from cover to cover and you need to understand everything. And if you get lost somewhere, you feel like, oh my God, now I'm losing the whole big theory. It's like the way we want people to read our books is you read them and then you come to a page and there's something on that page that inspires you or that, to use the word again, you find interesting. And then you use that and you take that with you and you... You, you look at certain things that you encounter in life from that perspective and you remember what it said and maybe that gives you uh, new ideas. And, and, and yes, absolutely. I think this is, that's what I mean by interesting thought, just something that inspires. And, and in the DIY sense also, not, not, not something that you even have to, okay, this is what the person here said. I have to understand what person... A said, and then I repeated. It's more like it's more an inspiration to get you thinking and develop your own theories and ideas. A note to our loyal listeners if you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes transcripts of fight studies 
and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you will help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Something my audience has brought up is skateboards and skateboarders at anti-fascist actions. You've also mentioned this in your writing. So can you tell us a bit about that history between skateboarding and anti-fascism? I think it's one of those, uh, again, coming back to the connections of, of counterculture and and politics. I think I should also say that I myself, I mean, I've rubbed shoulders with the uh, skateboarding scene through the punk movement, but I've never been a, a skateboarder myself. And so people who are listening and who are part of that culture have to be generous with my uh, <laughs> comments from, from a more of an outside perspective. But, but so I what I've seen in 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 the skateboarding scene is is often I mean it's not necessarily always very explicitly political. I think that's also one of the reasons why it lends itself to commercialization. But culturally, it was always tied to punk. Uh, hardcore, which again isn't always explicitly political, but is usually more tied to anti-fascism and the left, and and so I think there is just this 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 cultural, maybe countercultural bond that connects those different phenomena: um, skateboarding, punk hardcore music, left-wing um, activism. I, I remember it was interesting. I. I was in the 1990s and I was still living in Austria. I watched um, uh, just a, a panel discussion on Austrian television by some. I think there were people from the police and maybe politicians. And they were discussing, which was a problem in Austria at the time, um, far-right uh, skinhead uh, street violence. Um, so there were uh, fascist skinhead gangs and they would attack people. And they said, yeah, you know, so they attack foreigners and they attack left-wing activists and all of that. We understand from their ideology. But we've been observing more and more that they attack skateboarders. And we don't really know why. What? What? And I think it was just that they missed that 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 cultural link. So I could it, it made me laugh at the time. And it still makes me laugh because I could see how they would sit, you know, being detached from that culture. And they'd be like, what is it with skateboarders they don't like? Um, but if you have a bit more of an insight into the culture, it, it, it made sense that unfortunately they became an early target of those groups as well. And something you just said, far right skinheads is an important distinction because a lot of people don't know this, but not all skinheads were far right. And there's even skinheads who are against racism who fight those types of skinheads. So not all skinheads are far right. Exactly. That's why I always try. And it's it's difficult because it's become in, in, in the public mind, just the term skinhead has become so synonymous with far right violence that it's it's you have to remind yourself to not fall into um, that uh, that rhetoric. But exactly. I think it's very important to make that distinction. I mean, I know uh, I have good friends myself 
who have uh, at some point in their life at least, or maybe still do identify as skinheads and they are very dedicated um, anti-racist uh, activists. So yes, you have to make that distinction within skinhead culture. Now, this is more of a modern phenomenon, even more modern than skateboarding. But do you have any thoughts on parkour? <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, interesting because it's 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 new enough uh, for me to have never really practiced it. I mean, it wasn't around when I was uh, younger, and now I'm old and, <laughs> and stuck in my ways, and I do the sports that I've always been doing. But but with uh, I just had this, again, this discussion recently with uh, people who have kids, you know, on age five, six, and they should do their first sports classes. And and, I, and some of them sent them to parkour, and I uh, support that. I, I think it's in the sense that I think it's very good. It's very good exercise and training. It, I mean, there are competitions nowadays in parkour as well, but 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 the, the basic idea of it is 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 non-competitive. It's everyone. It's it's everyone can participate, and then you use the mostly urban terrain to do all sorts of tricks and have fun. And and I think it's become. For that reason, too, it's become fairly popular amongst alternative uh, left-wing people. So I'm not doing parkour, but I'm all for parkour. Do you think star athletes have the ability to affect greater politics, or do you think it's self-contained within their sport? Think about somebody like Muhammad Ali or statements LeBron James is saying no I think I think they have just because of the the uh, the status they have in society at large I think they have they can influence things certainly people's opinions I mean the people you mentioned Muhammad Ali uh, is, is, is a classic example of that uh, there was some very concrete recent examples I don't know if people in the US followed that at all even if you're interested in sports but there was a discussion this summer in the UK about um, taking away certain benefits for uh, families who, who are struggling economically when it comes to school meals. So they were um, they would get uh, so so children from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds will get free school meals, and the Conservative government wanted to uh, basically abolish that that policy, and then. Not exclusively, but again, partly because of a tweet of Marcus Rashford, who is a Manchester United player, very well known, also plays for the English national team. He was very angry about the decision and tweeted about it, and then it became a big thing. And uh, not shortly after, the, the government reversed its decision and even cited uh, Marcus Rashford's um, uh, involvement in the debate as as one of the reasons. So this is just one of very concrete example where um, a, a star athlete, because of their status, uh, can can have even a very concrete policy um, impact on on very concrete policy. But no, I'm absolutely convinced. I mean, I mean, look at look at the the status that and the, these people have and the, the, the people they reach with um, their statements, um, they absolutely influence public uh, debate. So since football slash soccer is the most popular sport in the world, it only makes sense it's also popular for workers of the world. 
But are there some other sports that are popular within leftist or anti-fascist sports? Yes, um, and I think it, it relates back a little bit to what we what we talked about parkour. I mean, if uh, what we said about parkour, if you look at the history of the workers' uh, sport movement, for example, it's it's mainly been sports that can be competitive. You can make anything competitive, but that that in its origins don't necessarily have to be competitive. Um, so cycling, um, hiking, mountaineering. Uh, running, and I think that ties into sports like skateboarding or snowboarding or surfing, which once again you can have competitions, but but that's not you, you can skateboard for hours and have fun without it being competitive. And I think some people would still argue that that's actually more fun. And and uh, I remember also those discussions when skateboard like snowboarding, which again me coming from Austria. I'm more into the winter sports, but when snowboarding became uh, an Olympic event, there were some of the original snowboarders who were opposed to that because it was like this was not this was not what we were about. It wasn't about the competition, and and so I think those kinds of sports, and even today, if you look at the uh, left wing, explicitly left wing, often very small but very dedicated sports clubs, they exist. This is very often what they do. They, they cycle, they do mountaineering trips. And, and so I think these, these sports lent themselves more towards um, left-wing involvement than, than others. But once again, I really want to stress that a sport in itself is neither right-wing or left-wing. It always depends on what you make of it. And, and the more left-wing athletes get involved in all sorts of sports, the better. Did any combat sports or martial arts get popular in European anti-fascism? Yes. Um, and again, this even goes back to the, the worker sports movement. Um, there were uh, judo classes, jiu-jitsu, and I think also tied into self-defense. But if you look at uh, the current situation, I have a few friends, um, radical friends who do uh, mixed martial arts, um, for example. Um, and then I think it's a pretty widespread. I mean, some do do boxing and some do taekwondo or muay thai. Or, um, I mean, often that really is tied to anti-fascist culture. People who are um, or see themselves as people who are willing to confront um, fascists on the streets. So it, it it just becomes a very sort of practical means that they will then apply uh, politically. Um, so absolutely, yeah. And, and plus, I mean, there is also, again, you can have competitions, but you don't necessarily have to. I mean, I know quite a lot of radicals who do martial arts, but it's mainly for a combination of self-defense and training and camaraderie. And, and But yes, that it's fairly popular among uh, activists here. Yeah, when I think about any sport, that is the most DIY or run the most anarchist. I think of a boxing gym. It's not like even martial arts where it's a class. You go in, you could pay a day rate or it's kind of run like a co-op or a club. I'm talking about traditional boxing gyms, not like the more commercialized versions. Right. And it's like you're on your own. And then if you want a trainer, you work it out with somebody in the gym and then you work it out between yourselves. It has nothing to do with the gym. And even then, your improvement as a boxer happens mostly on your own and you do road work on your own. and 
bag drills, most of the stuff is done on your own, right? So that seems to very much match the counterculture of the left or even like punk hardcore or skateboarding. Yeah, I mean, this is what some, I don't know, again, I, it's nothing that I, I did some judo when I was uh, in my early teens. That's my only real uh, martial arts, personal martial arts experience. But when I talk to people who do it now, and, and you know, I asked, so, you know, what do you like about it? I mean, a lot of them would would cite reasons that, that correspond to what you just described. Because with judo, right, majority of what you think of judo is you need a partner either to do drills or sparring. Right. Whereas when you think of boxing, it's mostly you and a bag. That's what people picture in their head. Right. So then for those of us who can't connect the dots, why is socialism connected to anti-fascism? I think because if you look at the the ultimate um, ideal of socialism, it's, it's to have a... a classless society so an egalitarian society and uh, fascism uh, is right at the other end of the political spectrum and but yeah no i mean the socialist idea is is uh directly opposed to the fascist idea can you tell us about the nazi olympics and were there attempts at boycotts so let's first have you explain what is the nazi olympics and why we call it that you call it that because uh, already before the Nazis took power in Germany in 1993, um, it was decided that the 1936 Olympics would be held in Berlin. And that decision was not reversed when the Nazis took power. So so then basically the, the Nazis uh, were in a position where they could organize the uh, 1936 Olympics. And in Nazi fashion, they did that in a very propagandistic way. And so those Olympics are uh, now often referred to simply as the Nazi uh, Olympics. And were there attempts at boycotts? There were attempts at boycotts, and they came from uh, two directions that partly overlapped, but 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 not necessarily. And one had to do with the uh, anti-Semitism of the Nazis, which was uh, very obvious already at the time. So there were um, attempts by uh, uh, Jewish organizations uh, to boycott the games, and and a lot of those were successful. I mean, it was it was a combination of Jews boycotting the games, but then uh, I mean, partly also out of fear because you didn't know what it would be like to come to Germany as a Jewish athlete at the time. But then there were also attempts at a boycott from a more general political perspective. So this would then tie into what we just talked about. So, so uh, socialists would say, well, we can't have Olympics in, in, in a fascist regime. Uh, those attempts at the boycott were less successful. There were some people who um, didn't, in some individual athletes uh, who were very much tied into socialist politics who didn't go to compete, but it didn't become as strong. It wasn't a boycott that was embraced by any of the national Olympic committees in other countries. And so what happened um, was that in Barcelona, uh, because the Spanish revolution was happening at the time where uh, both anarchist and communist forces were, were uh, strongly involved and, and had control over uh, parts of the country, including Barcelona. 
And there was a uh, so-called People's Olympics announced as a kind of counter um, event that same year in 1936. And then that unfortunately never happened because the, the fascist offensive in Spain started just a couple of days before those games uh, were supposed to be held. Um, but that's an interesting part of the history of, of left-wing sports. And just so people are clear on the timeline, you were saying that the anti-Semitism of the Nazis were already clear at the time. So it was clear to the world prior to the war. It was clear to the world prior to the war. Yes, everyone. I mean, this was it was so ingrained in, in both Nazi ideology and in what was already happening in Germany at the time in terms of persecution of uh, Jewish people that 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 was yeah you you didn't have to dig very deep to understand what was going on that that would have been clear to everyone who wanted to know because the way history is taught here in the US is the belief that Americans didn't have any anti-semitism and wanted to save the Jewish people and enter the war to save them i think the nazi olympics is a great example of how that was not the case right because they were aware of it for a long time, and they only came in at the tail end of the war. They didn't enter right away to save the Jewish people from genocide, which is the way it's portrayed here. A lot of countries, uh, especially also in Europe, have uh, rewritten their official histories when it comes to the Third Reich and the Holocaust and the persecution of uh, Jews. I mean, it was difficult for the Jewish refugees, often even when the war had already started didn't get asylum in the early years of the war in different countries. So so, so that's not just the U.S. Uh, problem or phenomenon that, that applies to many countries. Um, it, I, again, I, I can't um, say exactly, I can't say so much about the exact U.S. positions at the time, but it was nothing... That it, wasn't, it wasn't a boycott that was uh, supported by the National Olympic Committee or that would have been supported by the government. I'm not aware of a strong uh, political movement of opposition within the U.S., people who were calling on the government to, to boycott. I mean, I think there was also the idea, because you had then the history of Jesse Owens, uh, African-American athlete who won um three gold medals was it even four i don't recall <laughs> uh, a sprinter and and long jumper um and that was that then was often seen as oh that was so great because he showed uh, the nazis that that their uh, racist ideology was wrong and and some people then also turned this history they would they would t say that th that was exactly why we went because we wanted to uh, somehow undermine, you know, the, the racist ideology of the Nazis. I am not so convinced of that, to be honest. I mean, that's hindsight bias, right? Exactly. I mean, that's what happened, but now you're like retroactively projecting it onto the past. Exactly. So I think at the time why all of these countries went, it was because of a combination underestimating the, the problems in Germany at the time, not wanting to risk... Uh, yeah, you know, international conflict, there was commercial interests involved in good relations with Germany, at least before the war started. Um, you know, lot, lot, lots of reasons. It's just politics. So what we can confirm is that there was not enough mass popularity for boycotting where 
the U.S. and all these other countries did boycott it and they didn't participate, right? We do know that they did participate. Exactly. That was not, it wasn't able to, to mobilize a, a mass movement in any country, really. Which contradicts America's belief that there was this mass concern for the Jewish people in Germany, right? Because if they were so concerned, they wouldn't have even done the Olympics in the first place. Right. I should actually, but when I say no countries, it's it's a little complicated with, with uh, the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union didn't uh, at that time participate in Olympic Games uh, regardless. So they didn't, they didn't need to organize a boycott not to participate in those specific games. They only became part of the Olympic Games at a later stage. So there were no athletes from, from the Soviet Union. And had you know they at the time been part of the Olympic movement, I that would have been probably the <laughs> the the number one candidate for actually um, uh, deciding on a boycott. So to also add more context to this time, because this is a very confusing time for maybe to your point to the world, but especially here in the US, because of the way we put so much jingoism about how great the U.S. was during this era. We don't know the full nuance of it. So what was anti-Semitism like at the time? Because whenever I look up certain political figures, even when it's like on mainstream publications or in the encyclopedia, like a question like Winston Churchill, was he anti-Semitic? And the term I always see is there was an anti-Semitism of the time. And so in relative comparison to that, he was not anti-Semitic. He was just as anti-Semitic as everyone else. And they just kind of say it like it's an assumption that we all know. And it's like, wait, how bad was the anti-Semitism of the time? And so I had to do some digging. And it's like, everybody's kind of forgiven in that way. They were all anti-Semitic, but it was like, that was the ether of the era. So can you kind of explain to us what was anti-Semitism like? Because maybe if we think about that, then we could understand why the things that the Nazis were doing was being ignored for so long, but also the environment that created and allowed Nazis in the first place. Well, I think it, I mean, I, I wasn't around in the 1930s, so I, I don't exactly know how anti-Semitism expressed itself in everyday life, but from everything, and especially growing up in Austria, which, you know, with Austria being very involved then in, in the Holocaust, it's a big part, shameful part of the national history. And it started to, for some decades after the war, it wasn't really talked about much, but I'm probably the the first generation where it became a bigger issue even in, in, in schools and such. Um, and, and and I would say, I mean, anti-Semitism was, was, was widespread throughout Europe, throughout the world, um, arguably, Again, if the, the Nazis couldn't have done what they were doing had there been stronger support for the Jewish community uh, to begin with. So, so I think there was, uh, again, widespread discrimination in many countries uh, for different reasons, and that would take a whole different podcast. Why? that especially Germany then uh, completely escalated and tied into this uh, terrible uh, Nazi ideology that then legitimated uh, or, or justified in their eyes even the Holocaust is, is, is a particular story. But, but uh, I, I, and I sometimes think that, again, historically, you look at, oh, my God, yeah, this was such a freak sort of uh, historical phenomena, the Holocaust and oh the, the Nazis were anti-Semitic and, and then it's almost like if 
as, as, as long as you haven't been actively involved in the Holocaust, you, that means that you weren't anti-Semitic. I mean, that, that's obviously nonsense. Again, I think it was just a, the, the, a really extreme expression of a phenomenon that was very widespread um, in, in Europe at the time. At the time, the only form of bottom-up politics was socialism. In Europe, the biggest bottom caste were the Jewish people. So it makes sense there would be an overlap between Jewish people and socialism and therefore anti-Semitism and anti-socialism. So do you think anti-Semitism and anti-socialism is like the one-two in boxing, a dangerous combo that the right will always use? Yeah, I mean, it's very much the, the Jewish people. I mean, you have, I mean, they've been accused of all sorts of things. I mean, they're, and, and still are, you know, I mean, on the one hand, for some people, they form some kind of elite, oppressive, uh, capitalist class that exploits everyone. And then for other people, they are behind uh, dangerous socialist revolutionaries and uprisings. Um, but certainly in, in, in very pronounced anti-socialist ideology, you have, you have this, this strong anti-Semitic element where, where Jews are being made responsible for um, socialist movements, uh, socialist revolutions. And then you, you could point at numerous examples of very prominent Jewish socialists and how much that ties into their own experiences of oppression and discrimination that they that many uh, Jewish um, people active in politics weird towards the, the the socialist and left wing side. I mean that I mean that was certainly certainly um, a factor. They seem to always show up in fascist circles, right? Even if they're attacking the Jewish people for being globalist capitalists and attacking socialism, and they're doing it independently, they all still seem to be like the two main arguments. Oh, yeah, right. I mean, it, you know, you, you, you apply whatever, whatever argument that seems useful at the time, you just kind of twist it so that, that, that you know, it, it suits your purpose and interests. Um, and and the, the underlying, so basically the underlying anti-Semitism can take on different forms, but yeah. it is that, that core that's that's there in those ideologies. Well, it kind of connects to post-structuralism and Marxism as the two boogeymen. The Jewish people and socialism are like the two boogeymen. And I think that also overlaps with what I just previously said. It seemed like the Nazis were also trying to portray the Jewish people as like the social justice warriors at the time, these artistic, academic. Cosmopolitan, yeah. It seems like the same playbook used over and over. Very much, yeah. So then to illustrate how anti-Semitism is so in the air that we don't even notice it, can you give us the origin story of the torch relay? Yeah, the torch relay, it's, it's interesting because that's, I think a lot of people would think that, oh, it's one of these uh, Olympic uh, rituals that uh, you've just taken from the ancient Olympic Games and then applied to the modern games, uh, which isn't... True, there was a, an Olympic fire. So that part is comes from uh, the ancient Olympic tradition, but there was never a torch relay. There wasn't even a torch relay when the uh, Olympics were reintroduced uh, in the modern era, so in, in the late uh, 19th uh, century. And ironically, the first time that a torch relay was actually uh, organized was for the 1936 Olympics um, in Berlin. And 
the idea of the Nazis basically was again it was 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 part of their propaganda was to 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 tie the Third Reich to the proud history of the Greek Empire and 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 so they organized this 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 torch relay to to sort of you know connect basically the the these two glorious examples of of uh, civilization <laughs> and, and then and then it, it it stayed within the the olympic movement and why is it a good question some people would say because in the ioc which again um would be one explanation why so the ioc the international olympic committee why also from from that organization there wasn't any protest at all against the berlin olympics because there were a lot of anti-Semites uh, in in that organization, so it was kind of they weren't obviously they weren't worried about uh, uh, continuing a tradition that that the Nazis basically had um, had initiated. And then once again, I mean, history was rewritten. I mean, suddenly then the torch relay became this uh, beautiful thing of of connecting nations and peoples, and it became part of this. So the idea of of the the harmony of the Olympic Games that has been sold to us. Uh, interestingly enough, <laughs> when the the games were held in Beijing in in 2008, there were a lot of uh, protests uh, during the torch relay uh, in relation to especially the situation in Tibet and and, and Chinese politics overall. And so since then, now the International Olympic Committee has backed off a bit about when it comes to the, the transnational torch relay that will go through many countries. So now very often the the flame is simply brought uh, from, from Greece by plane to whatever country the games are held in. And then there is a sort of ritual relay being held there under tight security measures and and that's it. So, so yeah, it's a bit of an it's a bit of an, an an odd history that I think a lot of people aren't fully aware of. So, if all these countries weren't willing to boycott the Nazi Olympics, why would they boycott using the Nazi torch relay? Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. At one point, worker sports grew very large in Europe. How big was it in its heyday, and what contributed to its rise? So during the heyday of the worker sports movement, and now we're talking about the 1920s and 1930s, there were really tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands uh, of workers involved in, in uh, organized in worker sports clubs. And when I say worker sports clubs, those were sports clubs that were run by trade unions or political parties or that had been founded just by a group of socialists or left-leaning people um, who wanted to do sports. And the reason it was so big at the time was because of the wider cultural dimension of the workers' movement. So what I mean by that is that sometimes when you look, uh, also from a radical political perspective, when you look at the history of the workers' movement, you sometimes think that, oh, that means that people were only concerned with workplace struggles or their salaries or anything related to to labor in sort of a narrow sense but that wasn't at all true for the workers movement of the early um 20th century which really was a cultural movement so you had uh, you basically wanted to dismantle what people referred to as bourgeois culture at the time in all parts of life so that concerned 
the way you interact with, with other people that concern the way that uh, restaurants and uh, bars were run, uh, that concerned the way that uh, education was organized. So you had workers' education centers. And it concerned the way that uh, sports were organized. And, and so in this context of the workers' movement really being a broad um, mass cultural movement, worker sports could thrive in a way that, that they were never able to do after this culture essentially was uh, destroyed by fascism at the war. In the U.S., mostly because of the Red Scare, we don't know anything about the history of socialism and anti-fascism and also worker union anarchist sport. Are these things better known for Europeans or are they just as clueless as us? Maybe a little better because you mentioned American exceptionalism before. I think there is a, a very particular way of telling national history in the U.S., uh, perhaps, that that uh, eradicates those parts even more strongly than uh, it happens in Europe. Um but I mean, no, this is not this is not general uh, knowledge, even in Europe, even among certain socialist circles. I mean, that that history is not very well known. So so I, I don't think it's a huge difference. Now, let me ask you some questions from our audience. Chris asks, how could top tier sports be structured in a post capitalist society? I, th I thought about that a lot um, because I that too. I, I often thought, does it does it if you have a post capitalist society or socialist society, does that basically mean that uh, elite high performance sports are a thing of the past? I don't necessarily think so, but my answer I think would be that it's something that would happen more organically. So what I mean by that is that if, if people really enjoy doing certain sports together, um, then, and, and, and they really become interested in pushing their limits and, and basically just, just also see what they're capable of or what their bodies are capable of, then, then they would go in that direction. And I guess they would get some public, social support, but I can't see how you'd have programs dedicated to uh, training uh, elite athletes in a post-capitalist society or highly competitive sports. Or Also, I mean, I think in a post-capitalist society, the, the social and financial rewards of being a star athlete wouldn't hopefully be there so that incentive would disappear so so i think there, there there would be a place for it but it'd be very different from what it is now so the line between professional sport on tv and us playing as a hobby would be much more blurred and kind of like income inequality right where right now star athletes and regular people the gap is huge just like income is for the top americans versus everybody else what we want in a socialist society is for that gap of income to be much closer together. In a socialist, post-capitalist society, as far as sports go, why wouldn't the same thing happen? The gap between the top end and the average end would diminish. So would access to participation. Exactly. That, that, that strong distinction between mass sports and elite sports would uh, disappear. 
With things as dreary as they are, do you think physical activities and sports are more important than ever? I'm hesitant to say yes, because it seems to me that regardless of where in history we were, I think that was always important. So it's, it's, it's as important as ever, but it's not more important as ever. Do you think sports adds to leftist solidarity? It can. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm 100% convinced that it can if it's done and played and organized in the right way. But it doesn't necessarily do that. So I'm, I'm coming back to what I said before. I think sports in itself, sometimes I hear people discussing whether, you know, whether it was sports right wing or left wing. I think that's sports is just sports. You, you, you make it one or the other. And if you make it the right way, it can do wonderful things. Kel asks about sports as a tool for colonization. How is it used to colonize and what are some examples? She also follows this up by asking if sports can also have the reverse effect as a force for decolonization. Sports is intrinsically tied into colonialism. As I said earlier, it's a fairly new phenomenon, organized sports, really only emerged in the late 19th century, right at the time when uh, imperialism um, and colonialism uh, were uh, at its peak or got, got, got really uh, going. The world was divided uh, between um, the rich countries, essentially, um, the, the imperialist powers. And as part of uh, the process of colonization, I mean, sports were, 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 were part of the package. Uh, why is cricket a uh, national sport today in India and Pakistan? It's because they were a British colony and there are numerous examples um, for that. And I think when that turns into a decolonial factor is when uh, the colonized people start to organize uh, sports themselves. So if you look at the history, for example, of sports clubs, let's say in Africa. So the first sports clubs were all founded by, by colonizers, uh, French people, British people. And then, you know, um, after some years, uh, nationals uh, start uh, organizing their own sports clubs. And then, and then if you look closer to the history, I mean, to this day, you have sports clubs that have their origins in, in Africa, that have their origins in uh, co colonizers, and then some that that, that were, uh, were nationals, were founded by nationals, and, and that, that conflict continues uh, to this day. And and at some point also in history, especially when the uh, the anti-colonial movement worldwide got stronger, so I'm speaking after World War II, like 1950s and 60s, um, the sports clubs were tied together and there were uh, national sports associations founded. And in, the in 1963, I believe, in Jakarta, there were the games of Ganifo, games of the, uh, I forget, I'm starting to get tired. <laughs> games of the new emerging forces. That was it, Ganifo, games of the new emerging forces. So those were essentially, at, as it was called at the time, third world countries, countries from the global fourth that didn't, uh, global uh, south that didn't want to associate either with the capitalist or socialist bloc. And they did their own big sports event. And, and that then, sort of self-management, self-determined 
uh, organization of sports, I think, is when sport starts to take on a uh, decolonial form. So you basically use the tools of the master and turn them against the master. And I mean, symbolically, let's take the victory of Senegal over France at the uh, Football World Cup. I think it was in 2002. I mean, those are huge, I think, symbolically, symbolic events where where you, you know, you the, the, the colonizer uses those tools to show that they're actually now managing them better than the former uh, colonizer. And, and, and this is, I think, how sports ties into decolonization. We saw what happened with the recent NBA Black Lives Matter strike, which didn't last long. Sean wants to ask if there has ever been a strike or a boycott that has lasted that wasn't about salary, but about a social movement. I'm not aware of any extended strike by uh, athletes um, because they associated with a uh, a social movement. There were expressions of that. Again, if you go back to 1668 in France, there was an occupation of the headquarters of the French Soccer Association by some players in solidarity with the uh, uprising, the student and the workers uprising, but but it wasn't. I mean, this is a fairly short event, uh, and you've mentioned the the recent uh, short uh, boycott of the um, the the NBA playoffs. So something similar happened in, in tennis, where there was um, I think again initiated by Naomi Osaka, who said she wouldn't play on a certain day, and then they canceled all of the games during a tournament. Um, so there's there are such examples, but I think extended uh, strikes were really mainly about uh, mainly about salary, uh, whether that was in baseball or sometimes in in Europe in, in in soccer or so. Yes, I recently said on Twitter that the thing that really connects workers of the world is sports. Many had never considered it, but lots of people agreed. Then they asked the follow up questions of, why hasn't the left harnessed this, and instead of harnessing it. Why do they seem like they have a disdain for sports? I mean, the worker sports movement tried to harness that idea. Um, uh, so they they were trying to 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 bring together uh, workers uh, across the world because they understood that this was something that was bringing them together. Again, unfortunately, as I said, that was very much tied into a broad cultural workers movement that that was basically uh, destroyed uh, by fascism. And the war, and I think what happened after that um, is, and of course I'm simplifying now, but the left never really had that strong of a working class character again, especially then with uh, 68, where where a lot of the protests were carried by students, which influenced the left, which became more and more academic, um, middle class. And then classist elements uh, crept into it so so sports was seen as something there was different arguments were used opiate of the masses and irrelevant uh, necessarily tied to nationalism and competitiveness and hierarchies and so you sort of have this this negative image which i think is basically tied to an unfortunate development of the left overall from a working class base to being more of an elitist um 
academic middle class movement. Again, I'm simplifying. There are lots of exceptions, but I think this is the general trajectory that that we've seen and and where this disdain for sports uh, strongly um, where that can be explained. That's an observation I've heard a lot of people make just independently on their own, not regarding sports, but just in general, that there was a cultural shift where it used to be bottom up working class people organizing. And then to your point, it got decimated. And then when it came back, it was more of like this left intelligentsia were the ones to revive it. But then I guess inadvertently or for whatever reason, that created a shift where now it was no longer bottom up, but it was like this intellectual left that had taken over. And of course, then they come with their own baggage about sports. Exactly. Well, thank you for your time, Gabriel. I know uh, we took a big chunk of your day, not only because of this interview, but because of some of the technical issues we had at the beginning. Well, that's a nice way of phrasing it. It's because of my incompetence. You can say, okay, <laughs> it's okay. I, I know. But but yes, we did. We did. Uh, fortunately enough, you know, your listeners don't have to deal with that. But but just also, if, you know, if they noticed me getting a little tired towards the end, it's because we were already spending an hour trying to <laughs> Trying to get connected. Well, at the top of the show, right? I did say you were a former professional athlete. So living up to the stereotype of athletes, you don't know how to use computers very well. So there you go. And again, I I, I take it. It's the truth. So thank you for being patient and uh, trying trying to make make it work with the the low means I had to offer in the end. Um, but yeah, I mean. Generally, it was it was totally my pleasure. Happy to take the time. Great questions. Thanks for having me on the program. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye.